You are now listening to In Conversation with Mr. O, the podcast dedicated to machinery and equipment maintenance, reliability, and operations. It is presented by MRO Magazine, Canada's industry voice for maintenance and asset managers since 1985. I'm your host, Mario Suwinski, editor of MRO Magazine. Our guest today is James Reyes Picknell, who is the author of Uptime, Strategies for Excellence in Maintenance Management, as well as Reliability-Centered Maintenance, Re-Engineered. He is a mechanical engineer with over 40 years reliability, maintenance, and asset management experience. James is widely regarded as a subject matter expert in ensuring the delivery of value from physical asset. His experience spans a wide range of industries, public and private sector, all dependent on physical assets for their success. He is a professional engineer, certified management consultant, certified maintenance and reliability professional, maintenance management professional, certified asset management assessor, and certified blockchain professional. He's also the 2016 recipient of the Sergio Guy Award for Outstanding Contributions to the Profession, presented by PMAC. Well, thank you, Jim, for joining us on In Conversation with Mr. O. I'd like to start off by if you can just tell our listeners a little bit about your background and expertise. Sure, I'd be glad to. It's a pleasure to be here too, Mario. Thank you for the invitation. I'm, I'm a mechanical engineer. I've been around for a while. I graduated in 1977. So <laughs> in those days, the internet hadn't yet existed and uh, computer programming was done on punch cards. <laughs> so so uh, I've seen a lot of change over my career. I started in the Canadian Navy uh, as a ship's engineer and sailed over mostly the North Atlantic. Really learned the value of reliability there. Right? If it breaks down at sea, you're in trouble. So, yeah. so reliability yeah. is, is of key importance. Uh, after my Navy time, I went to SO Chemicals in, in Sarnia, and I spent about four years there as a rotating equipment specialist, uh, mostly focused on reliability of our, our rotating assets. Uh, did some plant commissioning work as well as uh, support to the maintenance group. Uh, I moved on to uh, St. John Shipbuilding in New Brunswick, uh, where I got involved in the design and construction of the uh, Canadian Patrol frigates, the ships that now make up the backbone of the Canadian Navy. And uh, I was responsible for putting in place all the maintenance program and all the support elements that went with it, so training, special tooling and test equipment that might be needed in the newer systems, uh, spare parts. And uh, we actually built training facilities, maintenance facilities, uh, all for support of, of those ships. And then I got into aerospace. Uh, that project started to wind down and a, and a helicopter project started to wind up. So I worked in Halifax with a company called IMP Aerospace for a bit uh, on, a, on a military uh, helicopter project, doing much the same sort of work. And then moved on to another company in Nova Scotia up in Sydney called Micronav, which I don't believe exists anymore, but uh, they were building uh, microwave uh, landing systems at the time for landing aircraft in uh, basically totally blind conditions, category three as the pilots call it. And uh, again, high reliability, very, very important, especially in that last 20 seconds before the plane touches down. Uh, you can't give them a wrong signal. From there, I got into consulting. I, I started at Coopers and Librand, and that became part of Price Waterhouse Coopers, later known as PwC, which it is still known as today. Uh, in uh, the early 2000s, they sold their consulting wing off to IBM. So for a brief period, a little more than a year, uh, I was actually with IBM. And, uh, and then I got out on my own and started my own firm. So, so Conscious uh, Asset has been going basically since uh, 2004 now. So we're, we're in our 16th year. So, so that's my background, uh, all maintenance, reliability, any place where I've worked, uh, the systems have always been 
quite important from a safety perspective, ships, aircraft, uh, landing systems, uh, chemical plants. Uh, mistakes can uh, certainly cause an awful lot of harm. So, so reliability has always been a key focus and uh, uh, a lot of it uh, I've had to learn along the way simply because there's, there just was in those days a lack of formal education in reliability. And even to this day, there's still quite a lack of it. It's, it's, it's largely a self-taught profession yeah. uh, with anybody that does it for the most part. Now, being in the industry for an extended period, what do you see as one of the biggest changes, positive or negative? I have more gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> the, the big change, of course, is the uh, use of and dependency on uh, technology. Uh, that, that's kind of an obvious one. Uh, like I said, my, my, when I was in university, we were using punch cards with computers, and the internet didn't even exist. Uh, today, information is available at your fingertips just about anywhere in the world. Uh, very, very rapidly. Uh, what you don't know is how accurate and how valuable that information may or may not be. Um, that, that's a bit of a risk. What I see changing uh, is that uh, folks that are, are kind of my vintage and even a little younger are, are already retiring. So those who had a lot of experience are leaving the workforce and the workforce is getting younger. Uh, all over the place, I, I'm running into uh, workforces that are, are substantially younger than they were just a few years ago. And it's because of that, that changing of the guard, if you will, the older guys leaving, the younger people coming in. And they come in with a much um, greater level of, of technological sophistication and reliance on technology, which mm -hmm. to some extent I find a little bit scary. Uh, uh, knowing all too well that databases that are, are typically out there in industrial applications are, um, are, are filled with an awful lot of really bad data. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the care in, in collecting and, and um, entering that data into these systems uh, just hasn't been there for, uh, you know, for years and, and from what I can see out there still isn't. Yet we've got a, a younger group of people coming into the workforce that uh, when they first arrive, believe it is good data. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I honestly believe they're gonna get into some trouble that way and probably repeat some of the mistakes that the older folks that are leaving uh, had already made. Um, there's not an awful lot of effort to transfer that experience and knowledge uh, from the, the, um, the retiring workers to the, to the newer workers. So I, I think that's a bit of a, a risk, and, uh, and, and the management ranks are being filled with, uh, you know, a relatively small number of people that are kind of in that middle range between the older and the younger. Um, and, uh, and, and a lot of them are very new to their roles, uh, so they, they, they tend to be kind of risk-averse. Mm -hmm. uh, when they ask a question, they expect a very definite answer, and it's not always black and white. So. Uh, I, I see there's, there's a lot of learning going on, and there always has been, uh, but I think the, uh, the reliance on, on technology, particularly management systems and the data that's in them is, is, a, is a little bit risky actually, even, even though the systems are quite capable. I'm not convinced the people are as capable as the systems are. <laughs> so those are, those are big changes that I'm seeing. <laughs> now, with technology taking over, now, do you see machines be being more reliable? Like we see in the consumer markets, a lot of machines are throwaways. They don't last as long as they used to. Do you see that in, uh, in the industrial space? Uh, to some extent, yes. Um, if you look back in history, like you, and, and uh, I'm a bit of a history buff, so if you, if you go to England in, and, and even parts of Canada, you can find very, very old equipment that's still running. 
uh, and it's been around for a century or more. Um, so, so equipment was built big and beefy, as a good friend of mine says, if in doubt, build it stout. Um, and, and as a result, there was a, a fairly low level of stress in the equipment. Now today, we've got uh, things like finite element analysis to help with uh, design. Um, and uh, we, can, we can really optimize the use of materials. So, so machines are built with uh, less material, um, higher stress levels in the material that is there. Uh, and they tend to be a little bit more susceptible to uh, damage in, in particular, like if you, if you operate it incorrectly, uh, overload it, um, it's going to be more prone to failing than something that was built big and beefy. Yeah. Uh, so I see that as a bit of an issue. Uh, I, I also see there's um, a tendency towards a modular, uh, modularization uh, in equipment um, where uh, you don't fix parts anymore, you change out assemblies. And, and in particular in the electronics world, you're just swapping out cards. And, and, and frankly, the skill level to determine what's actually wrong um, like the troubleshooting is actually a little bit less, I, I find, than it once was uh, because it's too easy to just go in, open the door, oh, okay, that car's got a red light on it, swap it out. Does it work? Yes? No? Oh, if it doesn't, let's swap them all out and see what happens. So you're, 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 the knowledge of what's actually going on in the equipment, I, I find in, in some cases is actually a little bit less than, than perhaps it once was. Um, but. Uh, um, but it's quicker to fix uh, because of that. So, be, so less, down, of, less downtime. Um, not necessarily, because I think that that depends an awful lot on how well your your maintenance activities and the support to them is planned. And 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 I I see consistently the same thing I saw what, 25 years ago when I got into consulting, that uh, the integration between supply chains and, and maintenance planning just isn't there in most cases. So, so even though the maintenance people may know what they have to do, they don't have the spare parts support. And it's not necessarily the fault of the supply chain. It's, it's, uh, it, it's to some extent um, a fault in, um, in, in maintenance planning where we don't really look long-term. We, we tend to look at a job plan, not a forecast of a future demand for it. And, uh, and of course, those two processes, maintenance and supply chain, are, are rarely integrated. Um, they, they don't talk to each other well. They're run by different departments. Um, so that, that's, that's just as much a mess today as it was 25 years ago. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> now, in your, in your time in the space, what, have you seen any habits, good or bad, that uh, you know, should really be followed? Any, any, good, any good stories? <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I've got a few good stories um, where, where customers have, have uh, decided they needed to make changes and improvements. And um, it, it was uh, very much uh, uh, sponsored and, and, and supported by very senior level managers. So vice president, uh, even COO, uh, and in one case, uh, managing director or equivalent mm -hmm. of a CEO uh, was in support of those projects. And, and, and where you've got that top level support I, I find you you um, you don't get an awful lot of argument from people that they must do it. Um, mm -hmm. Their their boss is telling them that it, it must happen. Um, but when he takes an active interest, uh, as I've seen in a few cases, uh, then um, he asks questions, and they better have answers. Mm -hmm. and, and the only way they're going to have that is to have been involved and and understand what's going on. So I see those working really well. Uh, the opposite is is the bad news is when uh, the poor maintenance manager or superintendent. Uh, wants to make an improvement. Um, he can see what, you know, he's done his research, he sees what has to happen. Um, but he, he attacks it uh, kind of piecemeal. He says, oh, I've got a problem in planning. Um, 
So he brings in some planner training and maybe hires some planners. Mm -hmm. and, and things will get a little bit better, um, but only marginally. Uh, he, he hasn't gone that extra step, perhaps, of, of integrating well with supply chain. And, and, and you'll hear complaints, even when they've done that, that, uh, well, we just can't get parts. So they're kind of blaming the supply chain, but the supply chain doesn't know that they need the parts because of that lack of integration I mentioned earlier. Um, in reliability, I've seen people uh, focus on um, asset reliability by saying, oh, well, we're going to do root cause analysis. Well, um, that's great. It's incredibly precise. Uh, it targets a, a known failure that you've already suffered the consequences of. Uh, so you'll get a pretty well... Um, well-defined problem that, that will have a pretty good payback right away. Uh, the trouble is it only deals with one failure at a time and you've already had them. Uh, so it's, it's kind of reactive to, mm -hmm. to situations. Um, you, you know, you wouldn't want to fly in an airplane if they were developing the maintenance program using root cause methods, you know. Uh, and, and most of us will get on an airplane quite comfortably and that's because they use reliability-centered maintenance. So, so, so some companies that go after their problems with root cause analysis, they'll have some initial successes, no question about it. Um, but they, they, that, that success level doesn't tend to be sustained, um, often because it's being focused just in the one department. And they treat everything like it's a technical problem when often mm -hmm. they're not. They're, they're organizational training, um, uh, procedural problems that, that can arise. Uh, with RCM, I, I've seen something similar. Again, let's do RCM. So they, they bring in some training. They, they train up all their maintenance and reliability people, maybe the odd operator that they mm. can yank off a shift. Um, and, and they proceed to do their analysis, often with half-hearted, at, at best, support from the operations people. Uh, and, and you don't get the best analysis out of it as a result. Um, uh, an, another problem I've seen with that is, is lack of follow-through. Um, if it's a, a maintenance uh, department often that's doing it, uh, they're busy fighting fires. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, because of that, they, they don't focus on the things they need to do to make, a, make it succeed in the long term. They're, they're too busy in, in short-term mm -hmm. um, firefighting mode. Uh, so, so even if they've done really good analysis, um, they may not implement the results. Right? I, I've, I've been into many places that say, oh, well, we tried RCM and it didn't work. Here's our analysis and you look at it and it's actually really good. Mm -hmm. But they didn't put the decisions that they made into practice. Uh, and they may not have had the discipline to follow them even if they did. Mm -hmm. right? Part of the problem with being in firefighting mode is that, that you're, you, know, you, you don't have the time to be proactive and think ahead. So, so that, that does create a bit of a problem for them. Um, so high-level support, really good. Um, doing it as a department, not so good. <laughs> Very mixed results there. Um, so I guess the, the key would be to empower your maintenance department to make and follow through on changes. Well, I, I believe they are empowered. Uh, what I don't believe they have is the um, cross-departmental, cross-functional collaboration that's needed. Communication. Yeah, communication is a big part of it. Um, but uh, if, if they need, say, operations to participate in a, a, an RCM analysis, well, you've got to get those guys off shift to participate. And, and if the operations guys say, well, no, you can't have them, then they'll proceed and do the analysis without them. Yeah. And, and, and the very first question in the analysis is all about functions, and it's the operators are needed to answer that. So, so right off the bat, you're, you're kind of crippling the, the effort. Um, but, I, but I see that even where you do get some of that collaboration, uh, it's, it's kind of half-hearted. It, they're not really behind it. Um, maintenance people are, are, uh, and reliability people 
we're technical uh, folks. Uh, we're not always the most articulate. And we tend to be pretty bad at putting a business case together. So, so we'll say, look, it's broken. We've got to fix it. It keeps breaking. We've got to prevent this from happening in the future. And everybody goes, yeah, 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 nods. But, but when you ask for money to, to do something to make it happen, and oh, by the way, we need help from supply chain, from operations, from human resources, nothing happens. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's because they haven't put together a sufficient uh, business case to make, that, make, to make the case, to get the money, and, and to get the collaboration. Um, uh, and and uh, these initiatives often fall off the rails. Even with early successes, they still fall off the rails. Um, after they've had just a little bit of success, they say, hey, we win, yeah. and they kind of back off. Uh, and, and I think there's, there's an awful lot of opportunity out there that's being missed. Okay. Uh, moving on to, maybe we can briefly, um, maybe we can briefly describe some uh, basic maintenance management techniques. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, well, one that you hear about quite a bit is TPM, particularly here in uh, southern Ontario where you've got a lot of uh, manufacturing related to the automotive industry. Uh, total productive maintenance was a, a, um, uh, a part of the Toyota production system. So it, it, it arises in, in the automotive industry from a company that is arguably the world's leader in pr producing quality vehicles. And uh, uh, it's very he heavily dependent on, on teamwork uh, and, and um, uh, people paying an awful lot of attention to little details. They make a lot of improvements with you know, small incremental steps. Um, and it tends to work really well where teamwork is uh, firmly in place. So, so companies like Toyota, who have plants not far from here, yep. um, are, are quite successful with it. Other um, automotive plants that I visited, I won't tell you who they are, uh, will, will say, that, oh yeah, we're doing that. But you go in and look around and, and it's very obvious right from the start that they don't have that same uh, level of care and attention that, that you do see in a Toyota plant. Um, so they're, they're, they're doing it, yes, um, but are they doing it as well as they could? Most likely not. Yeah. Uh, and they still struggle with some of the interdepartmental um, issues that, that uh, if you're in a true teamwork environment, you don't have. Um, outside of those industries, uh, I've, I've seen companies attempt parts of TPM. One, one that is, is um, fairly common to run into, even in industries like mining, is uh, 5S, uh, where uh, you know, the, the, the 5S's themselves sort, set in order, shine, standardize, and sustain. Um, and don't ask me the Japanese words for those, I can never remember them. Uh, but uh, a, a lot of companies, pulp and paper, mining, uh, other manufacturing companies, um, they, they start doing this and uh, uh, they, they get so far, they get the sort, the set in order, the shine. Standardization is a little tougher because it requires collaboration with your engineering design people and, and uh, some strategic sourcing with your supply chain people and a lot of... Um, input from maintenance, so, so that one often doesn't happen too well. And, and sustaining it seems to be a challenge. Like, like if the manager is uh, in charge of the area is um, a 5S fan, uh, it'll last mm -hmm. as long as he's there. Uh, as soon as he moves out, uh, it, it tends to fall by the wayside. I think people are to some extent a little bit lazy in the workplace. It's not your workplace, so you don't take care of it as much as you do at home. And, um, and, and you tend to let some of those good things that you've been doing slide a little bit. 
Um, and I've been into a number of plants where I've seen that happen, including aircraft manufacturing, where you know you'll you'll enter the the foyer and you'll see all the 5S stuff on the mm. wall, all the values, you know, the usual yeah. corporate stuff, plus a whole lot of description around 5S, and then walk through the plant. And, and you'll see some remnants of it. Um, you'll even see the odd award. You know, this is a, a silver station. This mm -hmm. is a gold station. But when you compare what a gold station should be with the description you just saw out at the, in the lobby, uh, they're not the same. And, and, and um, in one case, I, I actually I took notes. I had a long time to wait for the fellow that was taking me in. So, so I took some notes. And when we walked through the plant, I was looking for these things. And I questioned him on it. And, and what had happened is that uh, uh, th that particular plant, the, the company had been bought out by another company. And uh, the new company liked what they saw. They, they really liked the method, but they, they took it over to head office and kind of put their fingers all over, made it their brand. And of course, that annoyed the people in the original plant. So they sort of said, nah, we're not going to do this anymore. Uh, and, and, and that kind of thing, um, cultural misfit, sort of stuff. I don't know. I, I don't really have a very good word for it. But it's kind of a lack of change management around the integration of, of companies when they're being acquired, bought, sold. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I've lived through it myself. Uh, you know, when, uh, when, when, when Coopers and Librand and Price Waterhouse merged, it was done very well, but it was also done at a time when markets were really, really good. So, you, you know, just, just to put anything you did, Easier you made your money. Way. It was easy. Yeah. Uh, and we were hiring so many people that after six months, about every third person was a new hire anyway. So the old legacy, I'm an ex-Coopers guy, I'm an ex-PW guy, didn't matter anymore. Yeah. Several years later, um, IBM took over the PwC Consulting. And in, in my opinion, as one of the ones on the PwC side, it was handled very, very, very poorly. Uh, and uh, a lot of people just didn't stay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they just said, no, I've had it with this organization and, and off we went. And in my case, I formed my own company and IBM, I don't know if they still do, but they used to see me as a competitor at one point. <laughs> um, but I see that in a lot of other industries. Uh, mining is one where you see a lot of acquisitions and mergers going on. And uh, there's, there's often a big clash of cultures and uh, the, these transitions um, are, are, are tough on, on people. Um, and, and I find they tend to be rather poorly handled in a production type environment. So, um, so practices that might have been working really well in, in one scenario uh, are moved into another kind of in business environment, if you will, and, and they just stop. Uh, in fact, just a week ago, I was at a, a, a mine up in northern Ontario mm -hmm. where um, that uh, uh, that appears to have been the case. The, the, that particular mine has changed hands a few times and, and uh, they'd done some really good work. Like it was clear from talking to people that they knew what they were doing or what they should be doing. And, and you'd, I heard lots of stories about what we did do in the mm -hmm. past and there were little signs, little bits of evidence of it, so I, so I believe them. Uh, but uh, when they uh, w when asked about how things are today, oh, it's a disaster. It's all bad. Uh, so so th you know the good things that happen sometimes don't survive these transitions particularly well, um, and and uh, uh, so so that's you know TPM um, uh, uptime. My own book. Yeah. Um, there's a whole framework around maintenance excellence in there. It's fairly simple model. The the ten components of it are all um, interdependent. They they depend on each other. Um, 
there's no real sequence to how you implement it. And, and people look at it, it looks like a pyramid. They say, I'll start at the bottom, work yeah. your way up. But that's not really the case. I find that everybody has elements, uh, uh, all the elements in place to one degree or another, some more mature than others. And what, what needs to be done is to move them up in a, in a logical way. Other models, there's another one that looks like a pyramid. I won't name it, but uh, it, uh, it's very prescriptive. You, you do start at the bottom and work your way up. And, and uh, it doesn't matter where you are to begin with, you always start at the bottom and, and follow the steps. So that, that kind of prescriptive approach, I find, doesn't fit very well with, uh, with companies that I've dealt with. Uh, they, they, they realize that, uh, hey, we're already doing some of this stuff, and they are, and, and some of it they're probably doing well. So why go back to a, a more basic situation and try, and try and change what's already working? It makes no sense. Um, and then you got other models uh, that are, are just a collection of, of elements uh, that uh, don't really integrate with each other clearly. There's no obvious way that they interact. They, they all on their own make perfect sense. There's little clusterings of them that make sense, but really no guidance on how to go about putting it into place at all. Um, and, and I find those models, first of all, there's a lot of elements, so it's, you can't remember it. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, uh, no guidance on how to actually put it in place. So, so companies will use different models and follow them. Some companies have made their own models up. Um, one that I'm working with right now is making their own up. Uh, and uh, we just had some feedback from a number of people at various sites from around the world uh, saying, you know, it's too complicated. It, it had over 20 elements in it, and, and uh, they, um, they agreed that all of them made sense on their own, but just putting it all together in one model made it very difficult to explain to anyone. So, so it had to be simplified. And, and, mm -hmm. and um, so, so there are different approaches. Um, uh, again, what I think it boils down to is, is um, leadership to have success, regardless of which method you use. Uh, TPM and teamwork, a little bit counterculture here in North America. Um, we, we like to be heroes, we like to be the cowboy, the white knight, and, yeah. and you got to break that uh, in order to have true success with TPM. I, I think, uh, I, I know Toyota, for example, actually sends people over to Japan for a while to, to learn how to work in that environment, and if they're not a fit, they won't hire them. Uh, it's, it, they, they are looking for that cultural fit and, and, and it's critical. And they don't always hire people that, that they might think they need simply because of the lack of cultural fit, even though they might have the skills and knowledge that, that, that they're looking for. Um, other companies will work with what they have and try and change the culture. Yeah. And culture, um, I don't know which business guru it was that said it, but culture eats everything else for breakfast, yeah. <laughs> including strategy. Um, if the culture's not there, you're in trouble. And, and uh, in North America, our culture tends to be a little bit more individualistic, not, yeah. as, not as much focused on teamwork. So, so those methods struggle a little bit because of that. Yeah, um, it's one of those things that has to be grown organically. You can't just say we're going to change our culture. It has to mm -hmm. sort of become a different culture. That, that's exactly right. And, and if you think about habits, right, you don't actually um, uh, change habits. You, you gradually learn new habits and they eventually kind of replace the old ones, but it's a very, very gradual process. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, people quitting smoking, right? They, they use the patch and, and these various methods. Uh, so they kind of start a new habit and, and the old one disappears and then eventually they tr start working on replacing that with another new habit. Um, and, and it's the same with, with uh, any habits, and yeah. including the way you work. 
Now, looking to the future, how do you see IIFT changing how maintenance is managed? Well, initially, um, I see it as uh, it, it's very attractive, particularly to the very technically savvy younger group of people that are becoming the bulk mm -hmm. of the maintenance workforce right now. Um, so, so it's it's going to happen. No question in my mind about that. I think it has tremendous potential in the uh, condition monitoring, predictive maintenance mm -hmm. uh, realm. Um, really, all all you're doing, if, if if you think about it, is taking those predictive maintenance technologies, installing them right on the machine, uh, maybe with some edge computing and sending a a, a signal off someplace mm -hmm. uh, to tell you that there's a problem. Um, and, and that's what we've been doing with condition monitoring from the days when I was doing it at SO Chemicals with a screwdriver listening to a bearing housing. <laughs> <All right. laughs> uh, so it's just a more technologically advanced, perhaps, way of doing it, a little less labor intensive. Now you can sit with your phone and have little notifications popping off on your Just phone. what you want at three in the morning, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, so I, I see it as, as having uh, a lot of potential, though, to um, uh, put online condition monitoring techniques uh, into companies that right now maybe can't afford them, right? So, so um, larger companies uh, could always afford to instrument their, their equipment, put in the wiring systems to get the signals back to some processor and, uh, and, and, and monitor it with their own in-house experts. Uh, there, was, there was quite a bit of expertise to do that uh, around. And, and it was in the bigger companies though, the ones that had deeper pockets. Along came a, a, an, an industry that's still very much alive, offering that as a service to, to companies. Um, so they'll, they'll, again, you've got the instrumentation installed, there's some way of getting the signal out to their uh, analysts, their analysts look at it. Um, I know one company that actually has it, uh, the analysts are all in Israel. <laughs> for example, so no matter where in the world these these machines are, those signals end up being looked at by engineers in, a, in an office in, in Israel, and, um, and and they they know what they're looking at. They're very good at what they do, and and they see a problem and they let you know. Uh, with the IIoT, um, you're going to put a little bit more computing power, and you've got the advantage of having some uh, a certain amount of artificial intelligence and and machine learning that that will enable your own um, equipments, monitoring equipment, <laughs> mm. uh, to, to actually learn uh, what it's looking at. All right, now, now I, I, I'm a firm believer you, you want to tell, you, you want to design the monitoring to look for specific signals, right? You know from, for example, reliability-centered maintenance, uh, what failure modes you're going to see occur and what causes them. So, so you know what it is you need to be looking for. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that if you do that kind of analysis up front, you can actually identify what you should be looking for and then monitor it. Um, the trick is to know when those signals are indicating a failure. And, and uh, this is something that uh, machine learning might struggle with a little bit. Uh, because there's two components of information that have to come together. There's, there's the actual signal from the condition monitoring, which will probably be pretty clean. That, mm -hmm. That'll probably be pretty good information, assuming that the, all the sensors and everything else works. Um, but the other piece of the, of the puzzle is, is that you had a failure. And, and, and that the historically, that would come from your maintenance management system, which historically has really bad data. <laughs> so so knowing when the signal is telling you you have a problem is, is still a little bit of a challenge. Um, the, there is a technique, proportional hazards modeling, that's used mathematically to, to correlate those two. Um, but the data on the, on the maintenance 
uh, failure history side of it is, is usually pretty bad feeding into it. So, so that, that limits the ability of that to be accurate. Now you could um, provide a number of rules. When this signal gets to this level, we'll deem that to be a failure. Uh, it may be really early, it may not. Um, so you can do that with uh, rules-based um, artificial intelligence. Um, uh, but you may not be letting the equipment run as long as it could before you take it out, right? So, so if you had better maintenance history data, you might be able to get a, you know, a few more hours, a few more yeah. days, maybe even more weeks out of the asset. So, so I, I see the IIoT as, as feeding data into this thing. I, I've had discussions with a number of people around, oh, it's all just data, instrument everything and collect it, data storage is cheap. Yeah, but getting anything logical out of that data yeah. isn't cheap. useful data. <laughs> and, and to this day, uh, and I have done some work with, with people that really know machine learning and, and artificial intelligence, and, and they'll tell you that, that uh, you know, getting good usable data that's fit for purpose is still a big challenge. So uh, I see it has a future. It's coming for sure. Uh, I, I don't think it's all there yet. Um, uh, there are definitely some, some methods that, that will work. And, and the pricing, I think, of, of sensors and that is still a, a little on the high side probably for, for a smaller company. You know, I, I just, I think it was yesterday, I was talking to a company that has a, a uh, sensor with a little bit of computing right on board the sensor. Uh -huh. uh, and it, it gives off, uh, I think it's Bluetooth or Wi-Fi or maybe both uh, yeah. signals. But it's about $100 a point. Mm. to monitor and and uh, well that's cheap compared with what it used to be um, that's good but if you've got say a few hundred pieces of equipment each with several monitoring points that's a thousand times a hundred you're, you're starting to get up into uh, a price tag that's probably a little on the high side for a company that's that's small yeah um, and and uh, maybe manufacturing with very low margins so so the, the price points still are, are I think a little on the high side for it to be very widespread. Having said that, it will make its way into the, the smaller of the large and medium-sized companies sooner. And, and yeah, like, like anything, as the costs go down, yeah, more people start to adopt it. I, exactly. Um, but I but I do think that there's um, you know the folks that design these things and program them need to. Uh, I, I think there has to be some collaboration with those that actually maintain and see the failures that occur. Uh, and, and I don't see at the moment a lot of that happening. Um, the, uh, the people that know how stuff fails are out there fixing it. Uh, and, and, and the ones that are producing the technologies uh, are, are working somewhat in isolation. And, and uh, y yeah, the, the, uh, the machine learning, the artificial intelligence will get it there eventually. Um, but I don't think it's going to happen super fast. And not as fast as some of the hype might suggest. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've been to shows, I've seen, you know, sensors, a lot of them, you know, they're battery powered. So then you have to mm -hmm. decide whether you want a battery powered, which has a certain lifespan or wired. But then I've also seen some where it's like, you know, if it's something that gets really hot, then they try to use the heat yes. to keep it going. Mm -hmm. So it's, they're starting to become more innovative in how these sensors work to have longer lifespan. Yeah, wiring was always the big cost of an installed um, condition monitoring system. Um, and uh, in, a, in a plant environment, that can be a challenge to put wiring in. So that became the big cost component. I, I know I looked at that years ago, um, and uh, uh, the price of the wiring was far more than the cost of the sensors and the, and the monitoring, yeah. um, uh, the box with the software in it. Uh, 
uh, and, and, that, and that was enough to kill the project. Um, the uh, battery power, somebody's still got to change the batteries. So uh, if you can use solar, great. Uh, if you can use heat or, or um, you, you know, I've, I've got a watch at home that, that uh, kind of winds itself based on vibrations from yeah. my arm. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe that kind of thing can help keep things charged. Uh, I, I think there, there are these innovations happening that'll make it far more uh, I, I think user-friendly, but you still need to know that the sensors work. Uh, somehow there's got to be some smarts built into it to tell you that, hey, I've got a duff signal coming out here, so don't trust me. Or enough intelligence in the monitoring software to tell you that, uh, you know, we've got, a, we've, got a bad, we've got a signal over here, it looks weird, but nothing else is wrong, so the signal itself or the sensor is probably a problem. Thank you for listening to part one of our interview with James Reyes Picknell. Be sure to listen to part two, which will turn a focus to reliability.